I started writing this when I was 21 because I had that existential crisis of, oh my God, when my mom was 21, when she was my age, she was in a re-education camp and put in solitary confinement for a year and a half and then forced to work in the labor camps for the rest of the seven years that she was there. And what am I doing with my life? I'm a 21-year-old working in a restaurant, trying to survive and be an artist in New York City. Like, what is my purpose compared to my mom's purpose? You're listening to Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Hi there, welcome back to season six. This season, the theme is Ba Mẹ Ơi, stories about individuals uncovering the lives that their parents once lived. Last summer, I was invited to a reading of a play called Buried Ruins, written by playwright Carolina Dole. It is the only play I've ever seen performed on a New York City theater stage that was completely produced by an all-Viet team, both front end and the back end. There have not been many plays about our Viet community that have been funded and given an opportunity to appear on stage in the Big Apple. The last one I can remember is Viet Gone. Buried Ruins is one of the few performances that had me laughing and crying at the same time, but then itching to call my parents afterwards. Buried Ruins is a play that is memory, uh, wishful dreams, and maybe only somewhat true. It's a series of torturous family dinners that are interrupted by glitches of memories of the past. Buried Ruins is about Vietnamese parents and daughters trying to get through to one another despite generational trauma, the force of cultural assimilation, and also good, bad karaoke. Carolina grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. Her parents decided to name her after the state, and when her younger sister was born, they named her Cardinal, after the state bird. This play really, for me, is a love letter to my parents, to Vietnamese parents in general, to their children, to myself, and also to the ancestors who watch over all of us and the descendants who are yet to be born. So it started out as a series of interviews that I wanted to do with my mom and my dad. And the first time that I tried to do it by myself, it was a complete chaos because I ran up against the wall where like my parents didn't want to say anything. My mom kept trying to feed me and my dad kept interjecting every time she tried to tell a story. And so it was complete chaos. And I was so overwhelmed that I just like, I think the first time I burst into tears, I was like, I don't want to talk to you guys anymore. I'm done. I don't want to do this thing anymore. And I told my partner about it. And the great thing about him, besides his humanity, uh, is that he also is an immigrant. 
while he doesn't have the journey of like fleeing across the ocean on a boat that my parents do, they connected over the fact that both were immigrants trying to find a new life starting over in America as adults. And so they found this sense of camaraderie with him that I think opened them up to sharing their stories that I think they were afraid to share with me. And so we were able to, at moments, separate my parents into different rooms. And this was like a series of interviews over months and weeks that at times when I was able to go home and visit North Carolina. So there were days where usually over Christmas break were these interviews and usually over dinner or before or after dinner, um, sometime when my mom is cooking. And so while I was interviewing my dad in the other room, he was able to interview my mom, which is why like she shared so many things that I didn't know about her. Like, I guess growing up, I always assumed that, you know, my mom and my dad got together and they never had boyfriends or girlfriends or fell in love or with or had any other life before me, which I guess is kind of egotistical of a child, but also because they never really said anything about themselves that I really thought we that my parents really didn't exist before me. <laughs> I knew that, you know, they came over on a boat. I knew that they were refugees, but I didn't know the finer details of it all. During one of the interviews, Carolina's mom nonchalantly revealed that she, after the fall of Saigon, became an underground organizer, forming a resistance network. It turns out Carolina's mom was a leader of a group of young freedom fighters and at one point had assassinated a communist official. Well, I didn't hear about it until my partner told me about it. And I was like, I think you misheard it. <laughs> I was like, I think you're, I mean, I think, I think her English is bad and your grasp of Vietnamese is non-existent. So I think like wires were crossed. Like there's no way she's literally five foot at max. So I ran quickly to ask her and I was like, mom, like, did you, did you do this? And of course she's being very cagey about it and asking me to eat other things. And then finally, after a while, she shared with me the reasons why she gave the missive. And I learned that like she was part of this organization that had a lot more members than I knew of and were pretty much like this underground resistance network in the area of um, Ding Yang, which is further south of Saigon and even spreading into Saigon and Mithal. And that she was, I think, like the number two person in charge. And of course, like no one ever knew of each other because it was all underground. But from the way that the story and the way that she's telling it and she's she was being like very demure about it. But I was like, oh, she was very important because like to be able to have the power to give this missive and have people take and follow that lead uh, meant that she was pretty important. And I learned that someone later on when he came to america wrote a book about her but of what? Course, yeah but of course she doesn't remember remember the title <laughs> and i don't even think she remembers the name of the writer or she's being very very evasive about it all i know is that the book was in a bookstore in eden center that's really all I know. And so I've been like, I'm going to go find it. You know, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Yeah. So maybe, you know, because I'm like, I would like to know about this mention of her in this book, because everything that I know about her is what 
she tells me or what she doesn't tell me. And she must have been young, though, at that time. Yeah. How old was she? She was 21. Wow. Yeah, because I started this writing process. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's been like almost nine years of this process. Because I remember when I started writing the first outlines of the play, which were based on the fragments of interviews that I had between her, my mom, and my aunt who lives in our house. And so she was kind of like the third person that would fact check the both of them or encourage my mom to tell something that she didn't want to tell. Carolina remembers that her childhood was filled with constant chaos. Her parents worked long hours and she never got to see them. And when they were all together, she never felt like she really knew them. She remembers sudden outbursts of anger and arguments about things in the past that never had to do with anything in the present moment. She was angry with them for never being around or never being the parents that she wanted them to be. And so when she turned 18, she left home. I have a greater sense of myself through having explored their stories and who they were and they are in some ways I'm able to pinpoint like, this thing that they're saying to me isn't personal. It's not with the intention to hurt me. It's because this is the way that they talk or this is the way they communicate or this is the way that they see the world. And the way that they see the world is shaped a lot by the way they have been treated in this society and also in their lives. Like I think about the difference between my mom and my father and like i always wonder about like who were they before they went into these re-education camps who were they when they exited and who were they before they left vietnam and what were the things that happened in america that has caused them in some ways like caused my father to very much shut down and become like a very obstinate tree, you know, an obstinate like stone that is refuses to be moved. And how does my mom in all of her experiences where she's still able to look on the world with a lot more love and a lot more more grace than my father does. But I think it took me having to do the work on myself. It used to be that if something made me angry, I would just snap and we would just get into these huge arguments and then would, we would not speak for six months. Like, I thought he noticed <laughs> that we weren't speaking for six months. For him, it was like, oh, it was just whatever. But for me, I was holding on to all this grudge and all this anger from writing this play. I was able to fill in the blanks for myself of like, this is this person when they were 20, and this is this person when they were 30, and then they spent their 40s in America in a country that made fun of the way they spoke, made fun of the way that they looked at things, constantly was racist to them, constantly threatened their lives. And no wonder a person who could be very optimistic in their 20s can become very suspicious and very closed off in their 40s and in their 50s. I think in the play and what you're describing now, and we don't realize until we're adults, is it's just so much deeper. And a lot of the father's character in the play 
was him suffering, someone suffering from, you know, trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder, like a car backfiring could send my father back to the battlefield. Physically, he's here with me across from the dinner table, but his mind and his soul feels like he's back in the war zone. Or how my mom, you know, will have these moments where she rubs her hands. And I was like, I don't understand why you're always rubbing your hands, like what's happening? And it's the, sh it's the shadow of the handcuffs that she spent nine years bound in. You know, so they're constantly, I think, living and battling with the past. And the past to them is very present. So I think that was something that I learned. And I hope that other people who see this play learn that maybe we're moving in different times ourselves and our parents. And there are those moments where we're able to connect in the present. And there are times where our parents are in the past. And what is it that I can do as their daughter, anchor them in this present? Like, how is it that instead of like reacting with anger or disappointment or frustration that they can't be here with me and be able to be like, I'm just going to sit with you. We'll just sit until you come back to me and be okay with how long that takes. In 2022, Carolina was awarded space at the 59 East 59 Theater, a nonprofit theater that grants professional spaces and expertise to artists and theater companies premiering their work in New York City. And through other grants and support from Second Generation and Indie Space, as well as donations from the community, she was able to fund the first reading and pay for actors and stage managers. The ensemble only had a week to rehearse. However, their amazing performances were delivered like a seasoned crew. In this next discussion, I sat down with Carolina and Kara Hin, her play director, and Bijong Oh, the actor who played the character of the mom. Hey, I'm Kara Hin. I use she and they pronouns, and I'm a director and an artist and many other things. Hi, I'm Bijan Ngo. I am an actress, a daughter, and a dog mom. Hi, I'm Carolina Doe. I use she, her pronouns. I am many things, but um, I'm with the Some Collective. I'm a playwright, and I'm also sometimes an actor. My mom and my dad met in a re-education camp. My mom was a freedom fighter after 1975, and she was working against the communists in her region. And my dad was a, a South Vietnamese soldier who refused to put down his weapon. And so at some point, they were both arrested, and my dad was my uncle's cellmate. My dad was there for seven years. So when they got to America, it was 1988. My mom was immediately relocated to Greensboro, North Carolina with her nephew, and my dad was put somewhere in like North Dakota, but then uh, he lost his papers. I don't know how, and the only person he knew was my mom, and so he like worked his way down to find her to help get papers. Yeah. And so that was that. That was that. That's how they got here. <laughs> we grew up in Northern Virginia uh, in the Fairfax area. If you know the, the Beltway region of D.C., there's a huge Vietnamese population that migrated there. 
My father, Ngo Vung Thuai, he and my mom were married for just a couple years before the end of the Vietnam War. And my dad was always a newspaper man. And he had heard rumblings that there was going to be something going down. And he just said to my mom, hey, any day now, I think, I think things are going to go down. So my mom had packed a suitcase, but what she had in it was a handful of photos of her wedding photos and family photos and her, the white wedding gown she wore as a memento. The day Saigon fell, my father ran to the bank where my mom was working. I was like, we got to go now. Grabbed her, grabbed his mom, my grandma, and his younger sister. And they ran to the embassy and they managed to get through the gates and ended up on a big American military ship. And they made their way to a camp in Arkansas. From there, they had connections to family that had come over a few years before in the D.C. area. And my father was like, perfect, the political capital of the United States of America, where I can continue my work as an activist, uh, which he did. You know, as a baby, we were put in strollers and marched along like the streets of D.C. to protest for rights for immigrants and boat people. You know, in the early years, he, he and my mom, they did whatever they could to, to make do. So my mom, I think she sewed and made sandwiches at a, at a deli. My father pumped gas while they learned English. But my father kept writing with his friends. And that, that group of friends ended up creating offshoot newspapers. And then a bunch of them ended up being the first Vietnamese team at Voice of America. You know, my father, ever since we were children, he was like, listen, your mom and I, we lost our country. We lost our freedoms. We, to the very end, believed that we'd gain our freedom. And we, this country, if there's anything you can hold on to, it's that you have the freedom to do what you want, even though I want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pharmacist. <laughs> so we all became artists. And because my father was such a good storyteller, I think we just really loved that about him and, and kept it in our blood. So Kara, tell me about you. Oh, gosh. I'm, <laughs> I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, which, you know, has like, there's like a good Viet population there. So my mom is like white trash, Appalachian, Kentucky, country people. And my dad, he was 20 when Saigon fell. He's one of 10, and he had two other brothers that were currently missing in action in the war. He was in the South military. So he got, like, you know, one of those passes that, like, lets you out after curfew. And my oldest aunt, Hai, was working with the U.S. government. So she was like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. And he was like, well, I have this pass. So he took my oldest aunt and my youngest uncle to the, like, airport to like get them through security because he had the pass and he was allowed to be out and apparently that day like that moment my aunt started freaking out was like what if they don't you're coming back without us like what are they gonna do so my dad got on a plane unexpectedly and then ended up in Fort Chaffee in Arkansas and then made his way to Indianapolis because that's the only other Vietnamese people that they knew at the time and my aunt very tragically passed away a year into being in America my dad was actually at a college visit when my aunt suddenly passed away. And so it was just this, like, 21-year-old dude with his, like, 17-year-old brother deciding to, like, let's go to the only place where we know other people that we met on the plane leaving <laughs> Saigon. And so they ended up in Indianapolis. My dad put his younger brother through the end of high school and through college working at Kroger, mm, yeah. stocking the shelves. 
and then put himself through college before then meeting my mom at a Christmas party. When we reflect and just retell the stories of how our parents came here, what would you do in that situation? Every year, every time I talk to my parents, I get a new detail that sort of goes against the little myth of what they told me. And so I don't know if I would get on the boat. I, I've been thinking about it a lot, and, and I think about it when I'm writing. It's like, what does it take for someone to leave everything they've ever known mm-hmm. where generations and generations of their families have lived in the ground where their roots are deep to go somewhere that they don't know. And some it's by accident, some it's through like all of these things. But who are the people who like actively go, I can't live here anymore. I can't thrive here anymore. I need I, Wherever it is, is going to be better than here. So I asked my dad this question where I said, why didn't you try to leave right at the fall? Because we didn't leave until years after 75. My dad and my brother successfully left in 79. But he said to me, it's because they didn't want to leave their homeland. And they had hope that, you know, the country would start to rebuild because now the war is gone. And they just didn't feel like they would be punished because my dad was not in the military. He's actually one of five kids, and he's the only boy, so he wasn't drafted. So my parents had no ties in the war, and he said we quickly realized we were wrong. You didn't have to serve to be punished. You just had to be from South Vietnam. My father was very politically active as a student and then as a professional. So he had organized rallies that were pro-democracy and anti-communist in Saigon at high schools and then at universities. And when he was a student, at one of those rallies, there were two communists who came up and tried to take the mic. He's like, oh, wait, you're you're not one of us. And he's like, hey, I got to take the mic away. He turned off the amp or whatever. And they shot him. And my father was shot in two places and in the hospital for two months. He was tagged forever after as this political activist that was staunchly anti-Ho Chi Minh. So he knew that if he didn't get out, there'd be repercussions. And there were for someone else that had his name. There was a man who ended up going to a labor camp, sadly, with my dad's name. And when he got out, he I think he ended up somewhere in Europe, and there was a book that he had written at the time about it. In my memory, and the way my parents tell the story, even though it was traumatic, it is one of the most epic love stories that I will always honor, and I think it's why I'm such a romantic now. My mother and father, they had such an epic wooing, and they loved each other so much. And their escape, just how they held on to each other, how my dad was like fighting through the streets to get to my mom, I was like, come on. And then he grabbed his mom and sister, who happened to be at home. But he was like, no matter what, no matter what, we stay together. So how much of this did you guys know growing up, just your family's past? My sister, when she was in like third grade, drew a book specifically where my father, the Viet Cong, was a single person. That's <laughs> <laughs> true, it's just one person. Right, right. And she was like a, a single person, and it was like, my dad fought this guy. And then he flew over here and worked at a grocery store. So, <laughs> Being a a mixed kid in like a very, very like white suburban semi-rural space, 
little things came out like over time things that like I didn't realize were like super important to like my identity and who I was until I was like in my like early 20s and I was like hey dad you know all this shit that happened to you (laughs) it's like maybe affecting me maybe there's like some trauma inside of me um going to like an incredibly white university I was like immediately labeled as an other I mean, that was, like, my childhood, too, but, like, I was, like, I really felt it there, and I was, like, hey, can I know about why I feel this way? He's a very special person in that he went through so much of his life alone without, like, parents, no, like, family of any kind, because also T, when he got up to Indianapolis, he, like, got in a fight with one of the big patriarchs of the Vietnamese community of Indianapolis, and so... He was, you know, kind of exiled, so uh, daddy was really alone, so, like, he radically loves his children. He doesn't like to tell the stories, but he can say, like, this really affected me. And slowly over the years, like, we took a trip to Arkansas to visit my aunt's grave. And then for the first time, I, like, actually heard about, like, who she was and, like, what she did, the fact that she had a fiancé, all of these things that, like, I had no idea about. I feel like I'm still navigating who I identify myself as separate from my parents because I'm still learning who they are every single time I talk to them. I think I grew up, if anything, the way that I reacted to things was very much my relationship to them, like to my father, the way that I reacted to things versus the way that my mom reacts to things. And for me, it's always this fight between the two parents and who I make decisions as because my dad has a deep deep rage because of the things where like we were going back to like why did someone leave he had nothing left in vietnam all of his brothers died his mother and father died he only had like his three siblings he had to dig up his father's bones so i don't think someone recovers from that versus my mom where you know she came to things in a different way because she has had to make a lot of choices like she chose to leave her family she chose to do these things versus my dad had less of a choice I guess and she's managed to make decisions because she's a mother and is able to live for her children which is something like that's a lot of pressure to put on these children do they remind you all the time all the time all the time and yeah I'm still figuring it out and I'm still trying to see are the things that I believe of my parents what they told me or what I think they did or am I having to fill these holes because they'll never tell me? I do think I occupy this third culture, this dual identity. Because growing up, of course, my parents were like, God, I'm Vietnam. You're always. And they told me all the stories and they romanticized a Vietnam that existed before everything ended. And so I fell in love with that culture that my parents taught me. And then when it was when I needed to be very American and, you know, stand up for myself and, like, speak my own mind. And when my parents encouraged it, they would be like, oh, you're American, you know? So (laughs) I think in some ways I was really lucky that I embraced both growing up. There are so few stories about our community. There's so few of it in film and in TV, but on stage, it's even fewer. One, spread the word to our countrymen that the resistance is real and working with freedom. Two, collect intelligence by infiltrating the inner workings of the Viet Cong regime. And finally, three, gather enough supporters who can fight and arm them with weapons. If any one of you have a death wish and think you can help with number two, talk to our friend Hook here, (laughs) the expert. 
I can do it on my own. We need to get these sheets flying everywhere. We go into the vegetable baskets that the women take to the market every morning. Uh, under the seats of every motorcycle, every cafe soda that someone buys. Hell, we'll make toy boats out of them and hand them to the kids. We have to reach Mui Gang Yung Bao, Wei Saigong, and under the pillows where the pigs sleep in motherfucking Hanoi. There will never be any contact information on these pamphlets. We do not exist. We are incense smoke. Uh, believe that your cause is worth less than a kilo of rice to a mother who needs it to feed eight starving mouths. Go to sleep tonight knowing that you are fighting for freedom, for true liberation, on our own terms. When I first started, I just, I think I was just carrying so much anger towards them and myself and towards this industry as an actor, as a theater person in general. You know, I would go into audition rooms for Vietnamese roles, like for Viet Gone, and always feeling like I wasn't Vietnamese enough because of what ended up like being the, the people who were cast in the shows. And always thinking you know, carrying that baggage with, with myself of like, am I Vietnamese? Am I Vietnamese American? What is all these things that I don't know because my parents never told me. Holy shit, mom, where were you? Hello, Khan. <laughs> where did you go? I was looking for you everywhere. I was outside, wait for you to take you home. It called up in the classroom. Oh my freaking God. No cuss word. Friggin' is not a curse word. You're the only person on this planet who wears five friggin' layers of flannel in the dead of August. In Vietnam, this We're not in Vietnam! And why do you wear that stupid hat? I got it at the Goodwill only $2. Well, it looks like it's only $2, and it's at Goodwill, not the Goodwill, just Goodwill. God, how long have you been in this country? What I really loved about it was that it was coming from the daughter's perspective, and Bijan, your acting of the mom was phenomenal. Thank you. I also <laughs> fell in love with you because you could see the difference of what the mom was like, younger and versus older, and then even the daughter, I know um, the actress isn't here with us, mm -hmm. there was this one scene where like she's screaming at the mom, and Bijan, your interpretation of the mom and just her quietness, her speaking in the Vietnamese, her trying to be gentle to the daughter, that's how my mom was. Yeah. And I was like, damn it, I was mean to her because I saw myself in that exact scene. Yeah, it comes from the fact that I was so mean to my, I'm still so mean to them. And yeah. I mean, I should call them more. Um, we lose our temper. We lose our, yes, them, right? because yeah. it's, you know, because it's the language barrier. It's, we're sitting in different time zones or different like planes. And it's like that baggage of like, I'm not only frustrated with them, I'm frustrated with myself. I'm frustrated with history. I'm all of these things. And also, I wish I could just be more patient to them. I wish I could go back in time and change these things. So how did the cast come together? Jessica, our casting director, uh, was really wonderful. And I think Kara was really wonderful in saying, like, you know, we want strong actors who are great with workshop and really understanding and advocating for the characters versus just focusing on putting the play up. I had a lot of questions, and I wanted to know, do these characters track? Do they make sense? Are they someone that you as an actor would want to portray or live in? And what's exciting? We were able to like see some audition tapes, which exposed us to a lot of talent that were just like in the northeastern region. Because I remember I was freaking out like three months out. I was like, are there that many people? That I don't want to act in my own play. No, but we, we I feel like through that like that like casting process, we like met 
or found. I don't know that we technically met them because we just watched their videos. <laughs> but we, we got to but see. But you're like, there's enough out there. Yeah, it was it was honestly so validating to be like, wow, there are so many of us actually out there making art and mm-hmm. doing the damn thing. I felt confident going into it that like this story and our community would come together. Bijan, how did you hear about it? I got an email from Jessica and I read the the sides, the script pages, and I got so excited and I was like, I'm going to do my best in this video audition because, you know, like I'm in my early 40s and, you know, when I trained as an actor, the only role available for a Vietnamese actress to play a Vietnamese character was Miss Saigon. So I made my career off of playing characters written for white people, characters written for other Asian ethnicities. It wasn't until the past few years that we saw really an explosion of Vietnamese-specific content. And it was so thrilling to read Carolina's play and see a mom that's portrayed as strong, smart, that takes her life into her own hands and demands that the world see her the way she wants to be seen. To be able to embody a character that was bigger than life and who was just so, so broken and yet still moved forward was such a, such a release. And I really loved, I loved that week working with a whole Vietnamese group. I mean, it's so rare. It was all Vietnamese, our stage manager, our casting, our director, our cast. I wanted to be an actor, but they had no idea what to do with me. I found myself in directing. You guys talked a little bit about not seeing roles that were made for you or feeling like you could fit into any of these roles. So what do you think about it now? I think we're getting closer to controlling the means of operation, the machines itself. Mm -hmm. We're a long way from that, but I think the closer that we get to being able to make all of the decisions on how our stories are portrayed to the public, the more healing it'll be versus traumatic and like exploitative. I will say like for myself, coming into it as an actor, the first few years were like rough. The first time I played a Vietnamese character was in a Tracy Let's Play Linda Vista for when it went to Broadway. Like, cause I was like, I'm never, I'm never gonna do Miss Saigon. So there, I'll never, I'll never be on Broadway. Like, I, I hate Miss Saigon. Mm-hmm. So my first role out of grad school, it was a cowboy musical. And the role was for a blonde-haired, blue-eyed character named Jackie Lou, who was the estranged daughter of the lead singer. And, you know, you had to sing a song, and then they'd give you sides to read. And I could play two songs on the guitar. And I brought this guitar over, and I, like, dressed, like, kind of, like, you know, jeans and, like, cowgirl, you know. And I walked in, and they were like, why are you here? And I said... You know, hear me out. I, I'd love to sing for for this role. And, you know, if this is like a guy who's been touring and he has an estranged daughter, who knows who he slept with? I, mm-hmm. His daughter could look like me. And I got the role. And yes, from that moment, I was like, I'm going to make people see me the way I want them to see me. Mm-hmm. And that was a powerful lesson that, that came from that moment mm-hmm. for myself. Because all through school, people were like, well, you should try to do Flower Drum Song or you should try to do Miss yeah. Saigon. That's the big thing about Miss Saigon is like, and, and, and where we as like a theater culture has come from, right? Like at first it was like, just having us there is amazing, that's enough. Even though this story has been like completely composed by a team of white people and the, te- and the white person's directing it and the white person is designing it. 
I'm happy that it's not enough anymore to just like be there. Miss Saigon is the white person's idea of what it means to be Vietnamese and of the country. I think when I first started writing the play, it was more with like this, you know, there are not enough Viet stories. Like I'm going to write these characters that I would love to play. And then eventually over the years, it, it switched to like, I wanted it to be a love letter to my parents who might never see this play. And I wanted it to be a love letter to all the people who were different people before the war and changed and who are the people that became our parents Mm -hmm. and how do we honor those two split personalities i think the landscape has changed going back to your question but like there are so many more of us creating content now who are at every level of production Mm -hmm. from writing to acting to directing to producing to like casting to costumes So it's really exciting to see how the landscape has shifted over the past 20 years of me doing this, you know. I actually had my one-woman show, In Search of the Kitchen Gods, produced by a major Philadelphia theater company in the past season. And I had, like, workshop development over the course of a year that was fully funded and a four- or five-week run. And it was packed with Vietnamese people who brought their, their families back. And... That support, I think, came from building community in, in that city. But um, my mom came and saw it on closing day, and she had resisted. Mm. But my older brother, you know, kidnapped her from, mm-hmm. from Virginia and brought her up. <laughs> and she laughed the entire time. It was sobbing and laughing because I, it's, a, it's a cooking show, so I cook live on stage. Mm-hmm. And I also, like, play my mom and dad and the kitchen gods. And my mom was just like... I could not believe you make a show about mom. And she's, she'd be like, do this part again. You know, so like, what we <laughs> she'd be like, tell this story again. You know, so like she loved, she was like scared because I think she had the paranoia that I would share something ugly. And instead it was like super goofy, super just like throwing spaghetti at the wall, silly songs, and just all about like the celebration. Yeah. And my mom, like, loved it. So I'm like, God, like, you know, we have all these stories where we're, like, mining all the, like, trauma. trauma. Mm -hmm. But I also want these stories where we get to laugh because life is funny. Mm -hmm. Carolina is also one of the founders of the Song Collective, a community group of artists with the mission to reclaim the Vietnamese-American narrative by creating development and performance opportunities for emerging artists of color. They nurture a community of artists through workshops, panel discussions, and programs like the Viet Writers Lab for playwrights. For more details on Buried Ruins or to connect with Carolina, Bijan, or Kara, follow our Instagram page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 48. If you would like to learn more about your family's diaspora story, check out our conversation kit at www.vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash share. It's a deck of cards with questions in both English and Vietnamese to help you start the conversation. You can also check out our website for more stories and resources on how you can participate and share your story. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to support our mission, please consider making a tax-deductible donation on our website. 
Your support helps independent shows like ours continue to amplify stories from our community. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback wherever you listen to the podcast.